Good morning. So you can look on the back of your fans here uh, this morning. You can see the title of the message is Gone Fishing. We're going to talk about fishing. And some people consider that movie, The River Runs Through, one of the greatest fishing movies ever made. As Derek read a few moments ago, what was said was is they caught 153 fish. And what we've been talking about is this, that everything in the Gospel of John means something. There's some kind of deeper meaning to it. So what does 153 mean? What is the significance of 153. People say that there are 153 known people groups in the world at that time, and the significance is is that the message of Jesus Christ was for all the world, not for just one particular group of people. Other people say very similar to that is there was 153 known languages in the world, and that the message, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, was for everybody. Other people say it involves a complex mathematical equation. Ten Commandments, Seven Gifts of the Spirit, and then it goes into stuff that I don't quite understand. What does 153 actually mean? I think it is far more practical. I think it means something like this. When I was 15 years old, I got on a boat. Anybody a fisherman around here? Fish, couple fishermen? I got on a boat down in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, and went 50 miles out into the ocean with six other people, and we caught 387 fish. That was many years ago. I know the exact number to this day. I think what 153 represents is that these guys, these disciples of Jesus Christ, they were true and genuine fishermen. They were genuine fishermen. I think that's the point, that they were fishermen. That's what who they were, and that Jesus Christ chose fishermen to be his disciples and his leaders. How many disciples were fishermen? Who knows? How many disciples were fishermen? Anybody? Disciples, fishermen. Four? Five? Ten? Somebody said twelve in the first service. Twelve is not the correct answer. Does anybody know what the answer is? I don't know either. I have no idea how many of the disciples were fishermen. But I do know that next week we are starting this series that Derek talked about, and we're going to do a character analysis of 11 of the disciples. Forget about Judas. We don't care about Judas. He was a bad egg anyway, so we're not dealing with him. We're dealing with the 11 disciples. We're going to figure out who they were and what they did. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is what we are going to talk about today. What was it about a fisherman that Jesus, what kind of character traits did fishermen have that Jesus says, you know what, I need you on my team. I'm going to start a revolution, and I want you on my team because a bunch of them were fishermen. So let's talk about a few things about what were the character traits of fishermen and why did Jesus chose them, okay? The first one is this. Fishermen love adventure. You just watched it on the video clip. This guy, he's going in the rapids. He's all underneath the water. They love adventure. He's diving right in. He's going after the big... Anybody watch The Deadliest Catch? Anybody watch that show on... I mean, those guys are crazy. See the movie The Perfect Storm, you know, up over the big wave and then back down. Love adventure. You have to have an adventurous spirit. I want you to remember this. It takes an adventurous spirit to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. It takes an adventurous spirit to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said to the disciples, follow me, he was inviting them to an adventure. Somewhere along the line, everybody... We have been robbed of this fact. There is a greater association with followers of Jesus Christ in boredom than there is followers of Jesus Christ in adventure. 
But if you read through the scriptures, you see Jesus Christ and his disciples having adventures all over the place, on every page of the gospel, over and over again. Jesus Christ is like James Bond or something in the scriptures. This is the truth. How many times did you see Jesus in a situation like James Bond, surrounded by people in an impossible situation? They've come to stone him. They've come to kill him. He's surrounded. There's no way out. And like James Bond, somehow he finds the little trap door, shoots a couple people, and gets out. Over and over again, you see that. But what, what, what are followers of Jesus Christ? Oh, they're boring. We go to that church down the street. That church is boring, filled with boring people, a bunch of dead people sitting in that church. How have we been robbed of that? It takes an adventurous spirit. Here's the thing. We get very set in our ways, don't we, as people? We get set in our ways. All of us, we've got plans for the summer. We've got plans for the year, something like that. What would happen if God came along and said, you know what, I've got a different adventure than what you've set up for yourself to do this summer. I've got a different adventure for what you do for your year. Are you so encrusted in your plans and in your ways and in what you're going to do that you're going to do your thing, or are you going to ride the adventure that God wants to take you on? How encrusted are you? See, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ has to have a spirit of adventure, willing to move, willing to jump into the rapids to go after the big one. That's what it takes to be a genuine follower of Christ. Here's the second thing I see about fishermen. Fishermen persevere. Man, they're tenacious. They're patient. They keep moving forward. They keep going. You saw the guy. He's hanging on. I mean, he's underneath the water. Next thing you know, you see the rod come out, right, from the water. He's hanging on because he's not going to let go. Fishermen keep moving forward. Now, when we began this book, the Gospel of John, we read John chapter 1, verse number 1, and it said these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we said that verse reminded us of another verse in the Bible that was a little while ago from John 1.1. 1, 1. It was in Genesis, where Genesis is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what you have is Genesis, the whole world begins, and then the whole world kind of goes bad, doesn't it? I mean, things get way off base, and things go bad. And then in the New Testament, here you have John 1.1, 1, 1, which says, okay, now we're going to start over again. Things went really bad in Genesis, but now we're going to start. So we called what? John is what? The start over book of the Bible. Whether you're starting a new diet today, or you're starting a new you know, deal in your marriage, or you're going to start a new thing with your finances, or you're going to start something new spiritually, or you're going to do a new thing with a habit you have, you need to break a habit to start a new habit. Whatever you're trying to do new or trying to restart the Gospel of John is the book of choice because it is the start-over book of the Bible. If you read through the pages of John, you'll find a road map for you to get on to some kind of new beginning. If you've gotten on a new beginning and you've done something that we like to call in the church as backsliding, if you have backslid in some way, the Gospel of John is the book of choice because it shows you how to start over again and to kick things off in a new way to move forward. Now, we all hit those points in our lives, don't we? Whether we're doing a diet or we're doing a spiritual makeover, we hit those point in our lives like, oh, man, we hit this crisis situation, and it just feels better to go back to the old way of thinking, the old way of doing, the old way of speaking. But we've got to keep moving forward. This is what it says in Philippians 3.14. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, you've got to move ahead. He says, press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus. Everybody... There is no slick way to say this. You have to keep moving forward. When you hit that wall, what you do as a fisherman, what you do as a disciple or a follower of Christ, you've got to figure out a way to drill through that wall. 
You've got to move through it. When you hit that wall and you want to fall back, you've got to keep moving forward. And this is what we see. So, we've got Peter. Peter is the leader of the disciples. Peter had been a what? He'd been a fisherman. And there's nothing wrong with being a fisherman. But Jesus says, hey, Peter, you've done great as a fisherman, but I want you to follow me now. And here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the leader of the disciples and the leader of this new movement, this revolution, right? So like when I'm gone, you're going to lead it. This is, what, this is why I've created you. This is what you are called to do. Nothing wrong with being a fisherman, but I, I want you to move to a higher place of what I want you to do with your life. Peter's life was transformed, everybody. I mean, stuff going on in his life he could have only dreamed of. He's excited. He's inspired. He's full of life. He pledges his dying devotion to Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus, look, look. Jesus one day says, everybody, he looks at his disciples, everybody's going to turn back. Everything. And what does Peter do? Oh, no. They all, look at him, Jesus, they're all going to turn back. But not me. I'll die for you. There's no way I'm turning back from you. Because my life has been changed. My life has been changed. So he compares himself to the other guys. He says, I am never going to turn back. I'm never going to go back to fishing. I'm always going to be a follower of you. Then what happens? Jesus says, the night that he is arrested, he says, Peter, actually what you're going to do is you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up tomorrow morning. And you're going to turn away from me. And that's exactly what Peter does. And then Jesus Christ is crucified and his whole world is rocked. Man, he's just shaken up. Then on Easter Sunday morning, everybody, Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead and he appears to a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene. And what does he say to her? Matthew 28, 10. It's on your outline. It's on the screen. This is what he says. He says, go tell my brothers. Go tell the disciples, Mary. Go tell the disciples to leave for Galilee. And they're going to see me there. Now, who knows the answer to this question? Did the disciples leave Jerusalem and go back to Galilee when Mary gave them the message from Jesus? Who knows the answer? Anybody? Did they leave? No, they did not leave. And that's where he appeared to them in the open. Remember, in, 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 the, in the room, in the, in the upper room behind locked doors, it says all of a sudden, poof, Jesus Christ appears. Well, the reason he had to appear to them is because they wouldn't do what Jesus said. The message was said, okay, look, go and meet me back in Galilee. So he appears to them, and he talks, okay, why didn't you guys go? Uh, I don't know. We don't, we don't know why we went. What did he tell them to do then? Matthew 28, 16. You can read it. It's on your outline. It's on the screen over here. Here's what he tells them to do behind that closed door. He says, look, okay, I'm going to say it again. Said it to you before, I'm said it again. Go back to Galilee, but this time he gives them more information. I want you to meet me on the mountain back in Galilee. So what does Peter do? Peter's the leader. So Peter, his world's been rocked. He's kind of in that backslidden state. And what does he do? Does he take him to the mountain in Galilee? No, he takes him down to the beach. He takes him down to the beach to go fishing. What's he doing? He's going back to that familiar way of life. If any of us have ever been on a diet before, you know, and we're dieting and we're eating right, and all of one, sudden one day, you know, something happens to us. Something happens at work or something happens in a relationship, and we just need a little comfort. So we go out and we get a big old, you know, bowl of ice cream because it makes us feel good. So we eat the ice cream. We do the same thing, whether it's relationships, whether it's our, 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 our you know, relationship with God, whether it's spiritually. We go for the comfort. We're looking to go back. Here's what Peter's doing. He is familiar with fishing. This was comforting for him to go back to the fishing nets, to do what he used to do, to going back to the old way of life. He's going backwards. And so he goes backwards and he takes all the guys out fishing. And we're told in verse number 3 of John 21, the, this, he says, and when they went out, Peter says, hey, guys, let's go out fishing. And then it says this, ready? And it was night. 
It was night. Now, remember what we said, everything means something. And what does the word night mean in the scriptures every time we see it? Judas, Jesus says to Judas, go out and do what you have to do when he went out to betray him. And then it says, and it was night. Night represents going away from God's way to do things our way. So Peter's going, going his own way, and he's moving away from God's way. Go do his way, his thinking, his strength, his power, his wisdom. He's going to handle the problem. He's going to handle life his way because, of course, he's smarter than God. I mean, Jesus was just crucified on a cross. I mean, he must have got something wrong somewhere. Peter's going to do things his way. And so he takes them out there, and they fish all night. Now, it gets even better. They're fishing all night. I mean, they're working. They stayed awake. They lost an entire night's sleep doing things their way. And here Jesus shows up on the shore and he says, Hey, friends, fr hey, friends, have you caught any fish? Now, that's the worst question any fisherman wants to hear asked after he's worked all night long. I mean, they didn't even catch one little tiny minnow. They didn't catch nothing. The nets were completely, they had to say, No. No, whoever that is on the shore, we have caught nothing. We have nothing to show for that. We worked hard all night. And then Jesus says this. He says, take your nets and throw them on the right side of the boat. Now, that's a way of saying things back in those days to say, do the correct thing. The right side, to do the things on the right side, means do things the correct way. And what is Jesus saying? Try things my way. Now, everybody, those fishing boats back then were four or five feet wide. They threw it on the correct side. They did things right, threw it on the correct side, and they caught 153 fish. Think about this. They were five feet away from success. They were five feet away from success. And the difference in that five feet was doing things God's way or doing things their way. That's it. How many of us here are sitting here this morning and we're, we're actually five feet away from success? We're five feet. We're five feet away from success spiritually. We're five feet away from success in our marriage. We're five feet away from success in our jobs. We're five feet away from success on our diets. I don't know, whatever it is for you. You're five feet away from success. When we get in those crisis situations, we do exactly what Peter does. We tend to fall back on our own strength and our own wisdom, and we're going to make it those last five feet to success. And Jesus is getting them a message He's saying, do things my way, not your way. Rely on my wisdom, not on your wisdom. Do those things the right way. He's given that message. A lot of times we think about God when we get in that backslidden state, when we fall off the wagon, so to speak. We think, oh my gosh, God's up there, and he's just ready to nail us for what we've done wrong. Well, here's the cool picture. What does Jesus do? First of all, he gives them great success, 153 fish. That's probably the biggest catch they've ever had in their lives. What else does he do? Is he standing on the shore of the beach, you know, as they're coming back in, and he's got a big stick in his hand, and he just, bam, oh, man, I'm going I'm to get a hold of some tail today. You know, is that what he's thinking? No, he makes them a warm fire, and he feeds them breakfast, everybody. You know what God wants more than anything else for us? He wants our success. He wants to complete the work in us he began. I love this verse in Philippians 1.6. It says this, And I am convinced and sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. He wants to complete the work he started in you. Whatever you've begun, whatever God has begun in your life, whatever's going on in your life spiritually, whatever God has started there, whatever God started doing in your relationships, 
Whatever it is that God has started in you, maybe you've fallen off the wagon, you've backslidden or whatever, God wants to complete the work. He wants to keep moving ahead with that. He doesn't want you to go back to fishing in the old familiar ways of doing things, to getting caught up in the old habits or the old addictions or the old things that just kept you down, the old kind of crummy lifestyle. God wants you to move forward, to persevere. That's what fishermen do. They persevere and they move forward. God has the answer for us when it comes to things like money and sex and marriage and relationships and conflict. God's got the answer for it. Which way are we going to do it? We're going to do it God's way. We're going to do it our way. So throw it on the right side of the boat, guys. Are we going to throw it on the right side of the boat God's way? Or are we going to rely on our own strength and power? I don't know about you, but I rely on my own strength and power like all the time. When I get in a crisis situation, I tend to be over here more than I tend to be over here. That's just me. And I battle with this God's way, my way thing all the time. Right? God says all kinds of wonderful principles here in this Bible. But I say, you know what? This Bible is written a long time ago by people I don't know. Maybe I've got some better ways than they have. Right? But the deal is, is that God has given us this book to guide us. And the principles are tried and true and they're successful. When we go this way, we end up with 153 fish. When we go our way, we end up with nothing. Something happened to me uh, a number of years back. Um, my kids, uh, both my kids, are all involved in sports. And one of my kids was uh, playing a game and against uh, another team. And the coach on the other team, there's no, there's no easy way to say this. The coach on the t- other team was a jerk, okay? Let's just be honest. He had a reputation. He was abrasive. Uh, he was mean-spirited. Uh, he would get his players to do things that they should not do. I mean, the, the guy was just, you know, it was not good. And so there was, there was a problem in one of the games. Things kind of got a little bit out of hand. And uh, I found myself in a situation where um, I, I didn't know what else to do. I, I had to say something. There was a, altercation is not a good word, but we're going to use that word. There was a, a minor altercation. And wham, I mean, before I knew it, um, he, was right, he was right up in my face. And I wasn't happy about it. Uh, and in the midst of all this, he said something uh, about my kid, disparagingly about their athletic ability and this kind of stuff. This was, this was not the thing that, this was not good. This was not good. And lots of thoughts flashed through my head. Lots of thoughts. Thoughts just, it was unbelievable. I was like, whoa. And I was thinking things. I just got to be honest with you. This might be disturbing to some of you. I was thinking stuff. And uh, I knew I needed to de-escalate because there was lots of kids. You know, me saying the news reports about parents fighting at games, and I didn't want to be a part of that, and I want to see that. But I did want to be a part of it later after the kids were gone. <laughs> I wanted to. I was just drooling over the opportunity. And I thought, this has happened years ago. I, I, for the past couple years, I see this guy all the time. I see him all the time. Pass by him uh, at different sporting events. I just dreaming of the opportunity to catch him, you know, just, just the two of us. And he just looked at me the wrong way, just to give me that open door, and then, wow, bam. And God and I have been talking about this for years, going at it, you know. And God's, do things my way. I don't want to do things your way. I'm not interested in your way. You know, we get mad at God because he's so, like, mean in the Old Testament. How could God be so mean? Well, let me tell you something. God's not mean enough. God needs to be more mean, like, kill him. You know, I mean, it's really, I'm really fighting with God on this. This is bad. I'm really, I'm talking to God. God, what am I going to do? I want to, I'd be honest. I'm just honest with God. God, I really want to find this guy and I just want to pow, boom. And I know I could take him. 
Anyway. Um, but, you know, this kind of stuff. And so God and I are going back and forth, back and forth about this. And God just keeps saying, listen, my way. Leave it to me. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Just trust me. And then you know what? It comes down to belief. When God says throw the net on the other side, it comes down to belief, everybody. Do we really believe God? That's what it all comes down to. Do I really believe God? So when God says, hey, John, it's okay. Let me handle it. The question for me is, do I really believe God? So a few weeks ago, I'm at a sporting event. Again, same child who had this situation, you know, years ago, you know, and this coach and there's a, this big playoff and, oh, man, it's intense. The place is filled with people and the intensity is incredible. And this guy, this guy who I had the altercation with, his team, if my child's team loses in this huge playoff game, his team gets to walk on the field next and play for the championship. So if my child's team wins, he's out. He's done. And he's all about winning. That's all he wants to do is win. That's all he wants to do is win. Game is coming down to the wire. There's like 60 seconds left in the game. Score is tied. Who scores the winning shot? Yeah, my kid. My kid. And what does he do? I'm standing on the sidelines. God talking to me the whole way. Standing on the sidelines. And I just see him. He drops his head. And he just slowly walks away. And God says, would you just leave it up to me? Uh, you know, if you'll just believe me, I'll handle the situation. Now, that wasn't my way of handling it. See, I would have done things a couple years back. But it wouldn't have been the right way. It wouldn't have been the correct way. We stand five feet away from success, success, God's way. And do we believe him enough and his word to trust him last point is this fishermen must steer clear of envy we have to steer clear of him we've got to stay away from the comparison game we cannot get involved with that at all peter had made the bad mistake everybody of comparing himself with the other disciples when he said i love you more than the rest of these guys we're told in the book of Galatians that each person should judge his own actions and never compare himself with anybody else. But that's so easy to do. It's so easy for me to slip into. I bet it's easy for a bunch of you to slip into. We start looking at other people and lies and say, oh man, why can't I have it like them? And so Peter says, hey, I love you more than all these other guys do. And then Peter goes and he denies Jesus three times. And so Jesus comes along in John 21. He says, okay, Peter, let's go through this again. Do you really love me more than the rest of these disciples here? And Peter has to say, um, all he says is, I love you. He no longer says in the arrogant comparison way, I love you more than anybody else. These guys are going to turn back. He doesn't do that. He just says, I love you. So Jesus asks him a second time. He says, all right, do you really love me? And Peter says, I love you. Third time, three denials, three confirmations here. He asks him third time, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. And so Jesus says you need to redirect your energy. Instead of spending all your time comparing yourself against other people, this is good for all of us to know. It's so easy for us to compare. Instead of giving all your energy, Jesus says to Peter, and comparing yourself with what other people have and you wish you had and all this kind of stuff, he says instead you need to take up your ministry. He says you need to feed my sheep. You need to feed my sheep. You need to take care of my sheep. This is what he says. You need to get involved in ministry. Every single person here who is a follower of Jesus Christ has a spiritual gift. And there's no way you can genuinely follow Christ and be everything that God's calling you to be unless you take up that spiritual gift and you're using it in ministry. This is how Jesus redirects Peter. You've got to have that to be a genuine follower of Christ. 
So Jesus then says to Peter, okay, we good? You got that? You understand there's no more comparison? Peter's like, yeah, okay, we're done. All the comparison stuff is over. I'm not comparing myself anymore. And then Jesus says, okay, now I've got some rough news for you, Peter. You know how you said that you would sacrifice your life for me and you would die for me and everybody else turned away? Okay, I need to tell you this. When you get older, people are going to come and arrest you. And they're going to crucify you. And that's going to be really difficult for you. But I need you to know what's going to happen. And you know what Peter does? After we just solved the comparison problem, he turns around and he sees John behind him. He says, yeah, what about him? I mean, can, can we crucify him? Let's do something to this guy over here. It is so easy. I mean, we solved the comparison. Then we solved the envy. It's so easy to turn back and do it over again. Isn't that easy for all of us to do? We look at somebody else in our, you know, around us and we say, gosh, if I just had what they had. Now, what Peter did not know was this. And Jesus didn't tell me. He just says, look, forget him. Follow me. But what Peter did not know is that John would not be crucified, but John, the beloved disciple, would be thrown in a pot of boiling oil to die. The only problem was he didn't die. He was extremely disfigured. You ever burned yourself? Well, this guy was burned from head to toe in his body. His whole body was completely, that doesn't sound like anything to be envied, completely disfigured came out still alive and so what they did with him is they stuck him on an island called Patmos where they put all the dregs of the society all the most wicked selfish self-centered people on earth they all stuck him on this island they put John right down in the middle of it all disfigured you think that wasn't difficult to see? see we look around people and we say oh man I could, wish I could be like that but Peter had no idea people might look at Derek up here and say you know what God if I could be like Derek's got it so good this British guy gets to come to America and live, live in Cincinnati, Ohio, you know. I wish I could be like Derek. Why can't I be like Derek? I have three kids, you know. Why can't I be like Derek? But you don't know. This guy's got so many problems underneath the cover, behind closed doors. This man's life is all messed up. So we don't see that. We look on the outside and we think, oh, man, it's so great. I want to be like Derek. We don't know how tough it is. Don't get into the envy game, the comparison game, because you don't know what somebody else is going through. You just need to deal with yourself, and you just need to follow God. Here's what I want to say as we conclude this series this morning. Every single one of us in this room, God is trying to do something new in your life. I don't know if it's spiritual. I don't know if it's in your marriage. I don't know if it's in your finances. I don't know what kind of relationship or what way with the habits, whatever it is. But I guarantee you this, from what I read from Scripture, it seems very clear that God is trying to do something in all of our lives. We have a decision to make today. Will we go God's way? Will we go our way? Will we go the correct way and believe in God? Or will we try to do things on our own strength in our own way? Trust and believe God. Some of us are sitting here today five feet away from success. Five feet. Five feet. Think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you give us principles that we can live by things that we can trust in, things that we can believe in. God, I want to pray for every single person in this room, every single one of us, God. Help us to see this through to completion, to believe in you, to trust in you. For those of us today who are just like, maybe a couple of us are just inches away from success, help us to press through, Father, and to find true success in you. In Jesus' name, amen.